everybody, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your yeah, premier source of music podcasts. Uh, They're constantly adding new content, new artists all the time. Um, we release new episodes every two weeks, uh, as well as our spinoff podcast, Throughline. They also release every two weeks. Uh, in addition to that, we also release Judo Chops every two weeks. These are shorter mini episodes about content that we don't think warrants a full episode of Audio Judo, but still needs a bit of a deeper look. Uh, we've done episodes on uh, artists such as the Mars Volta, Victor Borga, Carbon Leaf, and a bunch more, but you can only access those if you are a member of our Patreon. Kyle, can you tell them how they can get involved in that? Sure thing, Matthew. So we now have three Patreon tiers. So our lowest tier actually doesn't get you access to those judo chops, but it does help out the podcast a little bit. Right now, we're calling it the Shout It Out Loud tier. It is one of whatever your local currency is per month. So that's dollars, euros, pounds, quatlus, whatever. It is one of that per what the month. the hell's a quatlu? It's a old Star Trek oh. money from like <laughs> the 60s that they made up. Uh, wouldn't it be great if I was like, it's the money they use in Monaco? Uh, like, duh. How did you? Wow, how did you know that? But it's for for one for one whatever a month. Um, you can help out the podcast a little bit, help us keep uh, the lights on around here, and uh, also you will get a shout out at the end of every single episode. The next step up from that does get you the judo chops. We call it the front row seats tier. It is five dollars a month, uh, and it does really help us make the podcast and keep things going. For that, you'd get a shout out by name at the end of every episode as well. Two-day early access to all the full episodes, um, access to the bonus mini-episodes, the Judo Chops, and occasional bonus content, which is usually little bits and pieces that we had to cut out of episodes because we went off on a tangent, or something that didn't quite fit that we cut out, or we something that we had to abort because Matthew and I were burping and farting too much. If you really want to help out the podcast and get a little something for yourself in return, you can sign up for the Backstage Pass tier. It is $20 a month, but for that extra amount of money, you do get... Everything that the previous two tiers gives you, plus a very special personalized gift after three months at this tier, plus, and this is the big one, you get a chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo on the album of your choice. That benefit activates after one year of patronage at that tier, and it can only be activated one time. However, we will do whatever album you decide to tell us to do. So, True story. I mean, so far we've gotten real lucky, and uh, we've done, what, two of those? What? No one. One. We've only done one. Yeah. Oh, it could be lousy. It could be a lousy record. Yeah, that's I true. I mean, it could. You could pick a a real shit show. You uh, could. Then that'd be fine. Yeah. The Patreon accounts are really what keep the podcast going. They really do help us out. They let us buy equipment so we can keep recording. Uh, they let us convince our spouses to keep going. Things like that. <laughs> so today we go back to one of my very favorite albums by one of my very favorite artists. Ooh. We have covered him once before when we covered his former band's album, Selling England by the Pound, uh, when he was the lead singer of Genesis. Mm -hmm. His time with that band is still my favorite era of that band, so naturally I'm a big fan of his solo work. Uh, we are talking about the 1986 album, So... By Peter Gabriel. And I hate this album. No, I'm just kidding. What? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I actually really like this album. Yeah, this album. I just, the last couple, I feel like the last few episodes that we've recorded, one of us has just been like, and I hate this album. There's been some so, animosity. There has. but That's okay. It ramps this, up the drama. Right, but this is good. I actually like this album quite a bit. So Yeah, this album is by far the least experimental of all of his work. And because that is the case, it is also his most commercially accessible and successful album. Mm. By this point, he had spent a decade releasing his eccentric brand of music with some limited commercial successes, and this release, buoyed by some tremendous visuals on MTV, 
boosted his career oh, yeah. to superstardom. Uh, but before we talk about this record, we should talk a bit about Peter Gabriel, focusing on his time away from Genesis. If you are interested in hearing about his contributions to the band, we went way more in depth on episode 45, the aforementioned Selling England by the Pound yeah, episode. So check that out if you are interested. So Peter Brian Gabriel, born on February 13, 1950 in Chobham, Surrey, England. Simon, if you're out there, Go ahead. Feel free to email me and correct me if I pronounced that wrong. <laughs> I, I actually have a question for our American listeners. Oh, American after listeners. you say that, yeah, specifically American listeners, because British listeners, I'm sure know. You know, there's a very specific way that things are named in Britain, like that. Yeah, Chobham uh, in Coxhill. Yes, you know, he grew up in a Victorian manor there. But my question to our American listeners is this: uh, if instead of saying that, we had said. He was he was raised in Neeswall up on Kensington, just outside of Titsmound, near the M115 exit for Shrubs Barlingtonshire. Would any of you know the difference? <laughs> would would any American listeners be like, hey, that's made up? Or would they actually know? I'm just curious because I love the way that English I, names like I don't know, they're much more real to me, I guess, than like American city names. Well, for some I think reason. it's more but, visual and and directional than anything yeah. else. Like like the old way we used to give directions to someone to find our house. Like now you just give them the address, they Google map it and they find it. Yeah. You know, if we lived out in the sticks, it was like, all right, you're going to go past the third stop sign. There's going to be a <laughs> rock that's got some crap painted on it. You're going to turn left there. Then you're going to go to this old gnarly walnut tree that kind of overhangs the road. <laughs> and then two more driveways past that. And then you turn. And that I think that they're kind of they're much more from that. visual in how they describe where someone is from. And that makes sense. Yeah. I'm just curious to know, American listeners, uh, reach out, get in touch with us, let us know. Uh, or British listeners, for that matter. Yeah, let us, let us know, know if you hate American names or if you think they're okay. American names are the worst. <clears throat> they stole them all from England. Right? Like you said, he uh, grew up in a Victorian manor. He, he grew up, he was born to a fairly well-to-do couple. His mm -hmm. father was an engineer. His mother had a very musical background. His great-great-uncle had been mayor of London in the 1800s. So, you know, he went to some of the finest private schools. As a child, his teachers noticed he was a very talented singer. Uh, he opted for piano lessons from his mother and also took a liking for drumming. But his earliest influences were church hymns. Mm -hmm. So before he had the opportunity to listen to soul music, like he would, which had a great influence on the part of his sound, he spent time listening to, quote-unquote, soul music. And he said I get it. that there were parts of it that really allowed you to scream your lungs out. And he used to love that. So he wrote his first song, Sammy the Slug, <laughs> when he was 12. Which, where's the where's the secret release of that? Like, yeah, I don't know. It's got to be Sammy out there. The Sammy the Slug demo tapes. It's Come on. They've got a basement tape. It's got to be right? out there it's somewhere. It's got to exist somewhere. At the same time, his aunt gave him money to take professional singing lessons. But in true rock and roll fashion, <laughs> he used the money instead to buy Please Please Me by the Beatles. Because, you know. Good choice. It's the Beatles. So in 63, 1963, he started at a public school called Charting House and formed his first band, a traditional jazz band that he was the singer and drummer for called Milords. Milords. And then he also formed a holiday band, which sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Just a holiday band? How so, cool is that? I, that's what I was going to ask is, does that have a different meaning that I couldn't find? Because to me, when I read holiday band, I'm thinking... Oh, so they only perform on holidays. Like they're like, hey, Christmas is coming up. We're going to learn a bunch of Christmas songs. Hey, New Year's is coming up. We're going to learn a bunch of New Year's songs. Hey, uh, I think you know. they only play holiday music. Okay. So it literally is just 
I think holiday so. Holiday music. Oh, that's cool. Someone's going to correct me. Right, hopefully. But I, the name of that band was The Spoken Word. Ooh, <laughs> that's not pretentious at all. Uh, around this time, you met another aspiring young musician at the school named Tony Banks, who he had bounded with over music. Uh, and they formed a band called Garden Wall and would eventually be the first two members of Genesis. <laughs> there you go. Uh, skipping over that, he would have many failures and successes over the ensuing eight years with Genesis. Uh, but what really happened was that he had become the band's breakout star. He was the front man. He was the creative force and typically the lyricist. Uh, he pointed the direction of the band and as a result was resented quite a bit within the band because he was getting most of the press, yeah. most of the exposure. It didn't hurt that his stage presence and persona were bigger than life. Yeah, His costumes were extravagant and oftentimes a hindrance to good performance, and the band hated that. It pissed them off. Well, they they were musicians, and he seemed like an artist. Even the first time that he did that, he was so reluctant to tell the band about it that he snuck off stage during a musical, like a, an instrumental interlude in a song, and came back wearing a red dress that he had borrowed from his wife yeah. and a fox mask to mimic the imagery from the front of their the front Foxtrot. cover of their yeah from yeah. Foxtrot. Sorry, I was drawing a blank there for a second. And uh, he came back on stage and then finished the performance like that, apparently. But mm -hmm. he said later in an interview, he was so like nervous about doing it because he knew the band would immediately veto it and be like, no, you're not doing that. And then it sort of grew from there. Well, the, and the crowd began to expect it. Yeah. Uh, he would do things to get people talking. He shaved part of his head. People thought he was a bit deranged sometimes. And watching those early performances, it's not hard to imagine, you know, why they would think that. Yeah. In 75, during the tour for Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, an album that requires our full attention at some point, he told the band that he was quitting at the end of the tour. He was sick of the business. He was eager to spend time with his family. He was getting calls from Hollywood to do treatments for the lamb itself. I mean, his wife had given birth during the recording of the lamb, something that caused great strife within the band, as he was the only member with a child at this point. And as a sign-off to the band, he wrote an article that was released to the press called Out Angels Out, uh, in which he shed light on his reasons for leaving the band. Uh, he spent the next six months taking a break from the road, yeah. spending time with his family, but also working on demos for what he hoped would be a solo career. He called that his learning period. Yeah. He did actually go back and take some more formal piano lessons there, as well as some more formal singing lessons, which to me... After you've had a successful band for that long, to then be like, yeah, I guess I'm going to go learn some more piano and singing. Right. Good for him. Interesting choice. I mean, good for him. It seems like a weird choice when you're already that successful. But at the same time, I definitely think that it probably gave him something to build off of mm. and inspired him to kind of go back into music. Uh, I think you're right. So he spent most of 76 recording the eponymously named record, Peter Gabriel, as his first three records would be called. And if he had had his way... All of would have been called that. Yeah. That first record, known colloquially as Car by fans <laughs> because of the Hypnosis-designed album cover, uh, was released on February 25th, 1977, and he didn't mess around. He rallied musicians to him. Yeah. Included on the album are legendary King Crimson guitarist Robert Fripp, bass player Tony Levine, synthesizer master Larry Fast, who I did a judo chop on a couple mm -hmm. months ago. Uh, and it was produced by Bob Ezrin, that same Bob Ezrin that we talked about on the Kiss episode. <laughs> Any fan of Audio Judo has heard some of those names multiple times as the circle of influence tightens and they all come together. Also appearing on the record was guitarist 
Dick Wagner, who figured prominently on the Kiss episode as well. That album peaked at number seven in the UK, number 38 on the US charts, and would eventually go platinum. It would produce one significant hit, Salisbury Hill, which peaked at number 13 in the UK. And one of my favorite songs in the catalog, Here Comes the Flood, which is just a fucking fantastic song. Uh, He toured Europe and the U.S. for much of 77 before immediately heading back in the studio to work on the next record. The fan name for it is Scratch. The next one. Yeah, the next one. Yeah, this time he opted to have Robert Fripp produce the entire record. And as a result, it definitely is the artiest of the solo records, with some of it a bit inaccessible to a typical musical audience. Uh, The use of Frippertronics, or basically (laughs) noise palettes, just makes for a really tough listen. Uh, There are no hits on this record. One notable exception to the accessibility of this record is a song co-written by Gabriel and his then-wife Jill Mm -hmm. called Mother of Violence, which is an excellent song. It did, however, go to number 10 in the UK and number 45 in the US. Right, but that's that's name power at that point. That's name power. Yeah. But still... Outside of having that name power, that would be a, considered a successful album for any other musician. Oh, without a doubt. But because it's, you know, inaccessible, it's like, well, it's not that. It's not that. It wasn't that great. Why are we listening? Yeah, it's just noise. Scratch, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, had a cover by Hypnosis, but it did do better than its predecessor. Exactly. Uh, and his band toured through 1978. And Gabriel immediately went back into the studio, and it's clear that he he began to come into his own during this period in regards to innovation and experimentation, and the songs were getting stronger. Uh, This time, Gabriel took a lot more time to develop the songs and sounds and spent almost all of 1979 working on this record. Uh, He had begun to embrace the new wave sound that was emerging at the time, and he was starting to dabble in world music and the use of African rhythms and sounds. One of the innovations to come out of these sessions was the unique sound of Phil Collins' drums. Yes. Gabriel was interested in breaking the typical sounds used by drummers and finding new ways to communicate rhythms and patterns. So he banned the use of cymbals during the recording process. And he said this, Artists given complete freedom die a horrible death. <laughs> so when you tell them they can't, what they can't do, they get creative and say, Oh, yes, I can, which is why I banned cymbals. Phil was cool about it. Jerry Murata did object, and it took him a while to settle in. It's like being right-handed and having to learn to write with your left. <laughs> so referring to drummers Phil Collins and Jerry Murata, two legendary musicians, he was clearly looking to challenge them. And this would lead to the development of the, one of the most iconic changes in the drum sound ever, and a sound that would dominate the 1980s. I'm, of course, referring to the gated drum sound. Yeah. If you don't know what I'm talking about, think, everybody, in your head for a second, think about the song In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. Yep. And hear the drum sound in your head. That's the sound that was developed on this record for a song called Intruder. And here's what that sounds like. The rest of that song is almost impossible to listen to <laughs> all the way through unless you're listening just for that sound. It's, it's weird. The album was produced by Steve Lillywhite, 
who was involved in the last album Gabriel recorded with Genesis, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And this song, uh, this album would produce several of his biggest songs, including Games Without Frontiers, I Don't Remember, and the anti-apartheid song about murdered activist Stephen Biko. This was really the first indication of Gabriel's political stance, something that would be part of his career for the duration to the present time. Uh, Peter Gabriel, or Melt, as this one is referred mm -hmm. to, was released on May 3rd, 1980, and was a critical and commercial success for him. Reached number one in the UK, number two in the States. Yeah. It included contributions from Phil Collins, Larry Fast, David Rhodes, Paul Weller, and Kate Bush, who sang backup on two songs. It is regularly referred to as one of the best albums of the 1980s, and he would tour the world for most of 1980. Yeah. He spent most of 1981 and part of 82 working on the follow-up to Melt, but this time he was able to build a recording studio at his home in Ashcombe House in Somerset. These are that Ashcombe House in Somerset. Right. Which would prove fruitful, but would absolutely slow down his process, as now he had endless time to work on things without the pressure of studio time. He definitely feels like a, a uh, for lack of a better term, a fritterer. He's a tinkerer. Yeah, where he, he, he goes and he's like, I got this idea, and he goes and gets it down on tape, and then he's like, but what if, and then he does it again, but let's try, and then, and, but what if we also, and then... I think there's you a little with, Kubrick in him. Yeah, you end up with 80 takes of the same exactly. thing, and no normal human being can really hear the difference. But he's like, no, no, if you really listen here, this note is a, a quarter beat early. And I bet you we can make it a little better if we do this. Yeah, exactly. And then he's unwilling at some point to walk away yeah. to, to say, okay, well, that's that's where I'm going to leave it. Yeah, and that's, you know, what is it they always say about art? It's never You never finish it, you have to abandon it. It's abandoned, it, so. Correct. And uh, that, I think that's kind of what he was doing. So he began to write a lot of songs with the Lynn drum machine, the Fairlight computer, leading to tinkering and rewriting and long periods when nothing happened. Uh, but the net result was huge and would lead to an even bigger album than the last. Again, he was focused on world rhythms and indigenous sounds for a broader musical landscape. Uh, this album would include his first U.S. top 40 song, Shock the Monkey. <laughs> Peter Gabriel, or Security, as this one is called, was released on September 6, 1982. While the previous albums are known by their other names between fans, this album was actually renamed Security Damn. by the label prior to release. His label, Geffen, go ahead. I would say they were starting to get pissed off about this. Well, you can't just have four albums named Peter Gabriel because when fans go into the music store and they say, I'm looking for Peter Gabriel, now the music store is like, well, which one of these three? And fans are like, I don't know. And they just pick one. Exactly. And then they get pissed off because they bought the one that doesn't have the hit on it. And now you're just pissing off fans and they're not going to buy all four at the same time. So they think what are we doing about they this? They think it's one album with four album covers. Exactly. But I do love his concept behind this. Did you see this quote? Yes. Uh, yeah, where he ahead. said, quote, the idea is to do it like a magazine, which will only come out once a year. So it's the same title, the same lettering, and the same place, only the photo is different. Right. Dang, that's a great idea. Yeah. I think it's it's really smart. It's, so It's such a cool concept, and I don't know – I'm sure other bands have done something similar before, but I think this was probably the first time. I think it was a great idea unrealized. Yeah. I think nobody got it, yeah. unfortunately. Um, and it remained as security uh, until he released it under his real-world records when he – reacquired yeah. the rights to it and restored the original name of Peter Gabriel. So I fell in love with this album on security. I fell in love with security years after it was released. 
I had listened to all of his catalog on and off for years, starting in like 83, but it wasn't until like 1990 when I had my first big boy job <laughs> and was driving through rush hour to work that I really discovered this record and all of its nuances. There's something about this set of songs that really resonated months after high school graduation. So I do find myself going back to this record pretty often. It's really, it's really good. <laughs> um, he toured through a lot of 83 and then spent the next year working on a soundtrack album for the movie Birdie, completely instrumental. And it found him exploring new ground musically, but also gave him the impetus to record more straightforward songs on the next record because he was doing plenty of experimentation on Birdie. Yeah. So he entered the studio in 85 with producer Daniel Lenoir. Who he had met working on Birdie. Correct. To record this album uh, we're going to talk about today. So... So, so released on May 19th, 1986, to, at the time, mostly positive critical reviews. Yeah. Uh, those reviews would be tempered over the years by criticisms of the 80s sound and yeah. overproduction. But honestly, I think this record actually gets better as it ages. Yeah. It definitely had a lot of uh, critical success at the time. Like, a lot of people liked it. It still, to this day, is on um, – it's a little bit farther ahead in my notes, but I'm going to skip there anyways – it's on. It appears on tons of best of lists, including Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, Colin Larkin's All Time Top 1000 Albums, and on Rolling Stone's Best Albums of the 1980s, where it holds position number 14, mm -hmm. which is pretty damn good. Yeah. It was nominated for a Grammy for Album of the Year, which it lost Paul Simon's Graceland. Mm -hmm. uh, it won nine MTV Video Awards. It appears on numerous lists. It's sold how many millions of copies? Certified five times platinum in That's the US, good. three times platinum in the UK, and hundreds of thousands of additional albums sold uh, in the rest of the world. Went to number two on the US Billboard 200 and number one in the UK. Yeah, it's uh, pretty good. It's pretty good. So I love this record. I have since it was released. Uh, it came out when I was just finishing eighth grade and starting to really get more into music. Uh, the videos for the songs Sledgehammer and oh, Big yeah. Time were on MTV almost every half hour, and I couldn't get enough of it. I spent most of that summer of 86 listening to it, and that listening was just you know magnified later that year when my uh, maternal grandmother passed away in September of 86. Uh, the song is not all about loss like that, but the song Mercy Street, which is so haunting, became a song I went back to pretty repeatedly that fall as some sort of comfort. It's just, uh, it, it, I don't know, just a refreshing type thing. It's, it's kind of dark and haunting, but I still love it. Uh, his voice on this record, different from most of his other recordings, is very strained, very emotional. Yeah. And torn almost. It, yeah. I do know that before this album, he was going through a lot of therapy as well. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if a lot of that obviously reflects in a lot of the songs that he wrote for this album, but I do wonder if it physically reflected on him being more vulnerable and that vulnerability showed up in the way his voice sounds on this album. Right. I, you're probably right. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. I love this record. So one other thing we got to talk about a little bit, the lineup for this album. Mm -hmm. So initially the lineup consisted of Peter Gabriel, Daniel Lenoir, and David Rhodes on guitar. They apparently had a ton of fun working together for a couple of months while they were doing the initial recordings for this mm -hmm. uh, in his home studio, uh, including they kept calling themselves the Three Stooges, and they would show up to record wearing hard hats like they were going to work every day, even though they were just going to you know play music. 
As it grew, they brought in uh, Kevin Killen to do the engineering, Tony Levin on bass, and Jerry Maroda on drums. Along with that, there is a freaking who's who list of amazing session musicians and one-off musicians that came in to play on this. Manu Cachet, who we've mentioned many times before. Manu Cachet. Right? Uh, talked about him uh, from Sting's The Soul Cages. He's playing drums and percussion in a couple numbers on this. Chris Hughes, drummer from Adam and the Ants and producer on another album we talked about, Tears for Fears, Songs for the Big Chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, he credited with the play, excuse me, he's credited with programming and playing the electronic drums for this. Uh, Stuart Copeland, a drummer from the police on hi-hat and drums here. Wayne Jackson of the Marques and uh, the Stax Records house band playing trumpet and coronet. Uh, we'll come back to him a little bit later. Uh, Mark Rivera, most famously of Billy Joel's backing band playing the saxophone here, Matthew. Yep. I'm sure you're very excited. Yeah. Uh, Don Mickelson, longtime Peter Gabriel collaborator and jazz musician playing the trombone. P.P. Arnold, who sang with Ike and Tina Turner for several years, as well as tons of other people on um, backing vocals. Coral Gordon, uh, who has sung with Dinah Carroll, Kenny Rogers, Pete Townsend, and many others over the years here on backing vocals. D. Lewis, who sang with Kylie Minogue, Donna Summer, and Rick Astley, among many, many others, also Ooh. on backing vocals. <laughs> Richard T, who worked with more famous artists than I want to list uh, here because the list goes on and on and on, playing piano. Simon Clark of uh, Bebop Deluxe and Red Noise on keyboards and Hammond organ. Kate Bush, I don't know, maybe you've heard of her before, uh, on vocals on, uh, uh, oh crap, what's the name of that track? Don't give up. Don't give up, thank you. Ham and organ or Hammond organ? Both. It is an organ made out of ham, also made by the Hammond organ company. (laughs) <laughs> did i throw you off I'm you sorry. did because this next one is uh, uh an indian artist named lak shminariana uh-huh. shankar shankar i hope i pronounced that l nice. l shankar, shankar is what he goes by on violin i had never heard of him before amazing violinist very much uh larry klein very accomplished jazz musician playing bass here uh yusu ndor a uh, famous Senegalese musician singing backing vocals. Michael Bean from the band The Call on backing vocals. Jim Kerr of Simple Minds on backing vocals. Ronnie Bright, uh, who played, or, I'm sorry, who sang in various doo groups, including the Valentines, the Cadillacs, and the Coasters, singing deep bass vocals. Jalma Correa, a Brazilian percussionist, playing the Cerdo, the Congas, and the Triangle. Jimmy Browler, a legend in the world of electronic music, programming the electronic kick drums here. Bill Laswell, a session musician who's played with hundreds of artists and worked with hundreds more as his role as a music producer, playing bass. Niall Rogers, co-founder and guitar player for the band Chic, here on guitar. And Laurie Anderson, avant-garde artist, composer, musician, who creates many of her own electronic music, music instruments. And here she's credited with playing the synthesizer and singing some vocals. Is that enough, people, for you on one album? It's a lot. All of these people are 80s icons. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that they're like, oh, yeah, they just came together for one album. Mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, everybody he's ever had on his his solo records has been like that. Yeah. I mean, when you're we're pulling in Phil Collins to play casually. Yeah. For, yeah. for a couple, you know. Come on in, Phil, just for a little bit. Just a little bit. One of the other things that kind of blew my mind is I read somewhere this only cost 200,000 pounds to make. Probably. It's the 80s. <laughs> that seems like such a low amount to me. Like, I feel like an album like this, half a million, million pounds, no problem. But 200,000 pounds. Yeah, I don't know what the... And it's still a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But Remember, he did record this in his own studio. True. So we're taking that cost probably out of it. True. So is he just paying for I guess that's true. Then he's just paying point? for musicians and engineers. Right. So. And tape, essentially. 
Yeah. Still crazy. Lots and lots of tape. Uh, You want to talk about the artwork? Yeah, let's do it. So the cover, Mm -hmm. see what I did there? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just a black and white picture of Peter Gabriel. The name So is in big black letters in the upper left-hand corner with Peter Gabriel in a blue box in white text right below it. The rear is just plain white with the track listing, the name Peter Gabriel, and So in the lower right-hand corner. Nice and simple. Nice and simple. Designed by Peter Seville. Mm -hmm. Photo was taken by Trevor Key, and it is just simple. Gone are the melting faces, the metallic eyeballs, the scratched and strained faces of hypnosis. Opting for simplicity, because as Gabriel put it, Apparently, I'm alienating a lot of female fans who are turned off by the other album covers. <laughs> uh, yeah, because they're like, why is his face melting? Gross. I don't want to listen to that. So they just put him up there, you know? Yeah. Casual, chic Peter Gabriel looking con- confounded. Like, Did you huh? see the interview with uh, Peter Seville on, I believe it's on Peter Gabriel's website, talking about creating this cover? No. Oh, my God. So go look it up. It's it's a fantastic interview. I got to go over it real quick here. Originally, this album was going to be called Good. And Peter Seville's partner, Brett Wickens, was the one who was originally commissioned to make it. And he had been working on some some ideas and stuff. And uh, one day he called up Peter and said, uh, we have a problem. And Peter went over to talk to him and look at some proofs of the cover. And he said, God, this is awful. <laughs> so they actually drove down to, uh, to meet with Peter Gabriel. And they... After talking with him for a while, they agreed to completely start over. So during the meeting, Peter Gabriel mentioned they might be changing the name of the album to So. And they said, okay, great. And as they're leaving, he hands Brett a tape saying, here it is. I think it's finished. So they now have probably the first copy to leave the studio of So in their hands. They get in the car. They start driving down the M4 motorway, and immediately in front of them, a car crashes into the trees on the side of the road, just swerves off the road, crashes right into the trees. So they stop. This is the 1980s. Nobody has cell phones and shit. What? So they stop. They go over. Person's okay. They get him out of the car. Uh, you know, they wait around until the police show up, they, you know, do all the stuff. While they have this finished copy of yeah, the record? it's just sitting in the car. Oh, my God. So <laughs> they finally get permission to leave. So obviously, they're both kind of frazzled. Right. They just watch somebody get in a horrible car accident. Right. So they get back on the road and after a bit of back and forth, whether or not they should actually listen to this album right now because of the mental state they're in. <laughs> let's listen to it. Immediately, Red Rain starts and they're both completely blown away. Next, it rolls right into Sledgehammer and they had to pull over because they were both so excited about it. They immediately knew being part of the music industry. They're like, this is a fucking hit song. This is a hit song. We we are listening to a hit song on a hit album, and we get to design the cover for it. Well, that's got to be pretty cool. Right? So, Knowing that you're listening right? to, to a hit record that isn't a record yet? Yeah. So they went back and threw around some ideas, decided they had to take some pictures of uh, Peter Gabriel, and they brought him into the studio. And uh, like you said, Trevor Key took the photo, but they had some problems in the way he was sort of reacting to the original photographs that they were taking. He looked really static and stoic. And yeah. so they did something they had done with the band New Order a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. They got out a Polaroid camera and they started taking Polaroids because, you know, ni- again, 1980s with a Polaroid camera, you can immediately pop a picture out of it and say, that's what you look like. And what's weird is that he should be familiar with this phenomenon because most of the hypnosis stuff, like the Melt record was mm-hmm. done on a Polaroid. That's and what they did. They took it and then they smeared it. He mary- he very well may have been. But, you know, in this situation, they finally pulled out the Polaroid and started taking pictures. And after about an hour, they had this iconic cover. Yeah. It just basically 
Peter kind of takes credit for creating Peter Gabriel's Peter Saville, I should say. Yeah. Takes credit for creating Peter Gabriel's image for the next 15 to 20 years <laughs> in this article. But it is a very fascinating behind the scenes story. The the idea that, you know, they created it after seeing a car accident and then being blown away by this album while they're driving. That's great. In this high emotional state. I thought it was a great story. That's a great story. And obviously I'm skipping over a lot of the details, but go go check it out. It's it's a great and it is uh if you search for Peter Saville so cover, it'll and you come up. Skipped all the important bits. Right. Peter Saville, very famous graphic designer, another gent we've talked about before. He mm-hmm. was heavily involved in the designs for Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures. Oh yeah. His partner on the design that you mentioned, Brett Wickens, is also a very successful designer. And the photographer Trevor Key was famous for designing the cover for Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, yeah. another album I've done a chop for. Weird how these all come together. Right. Very strange. He also took photos for a long laundry list of acts in the 80s and also designed the very famous Virgin logo that everyone is familiar with. He unfortunately passed away in 95 due to a brain tumor. But I love this cover and picture, even though it is so simple. With the uh, ostentatious... ostentatiousness of the <laughs> 80s in full swing. This this cover was very muted in comparison. It's understated, and I love it. Um, yeah, it is great. You want to take a break and uh, come back yeah, and do a track do by it. track? Yeah. All right, sounds good. Red Rain. Album begins with what is uh, one of my top five songs from him. Opening of this song is a hi-hat section played by Stuart Copeland, drummer for The Police. Uh, This was the period of his career that Gabriel was averse to using metallic percussion instruments of any kind, but felt that an effective pattern played by an expert would be great at simulating the sound of rain. Copeland is very much an expert at hi-hat. And the patterns he plays, coupled with some drum programming blended together by Chris Hughes, is very effective at creating the sound of pattering rain. It's a very unique sound. The song itself could easily be viewed from the outside as a song about the environment, or climate change, or even nuclear fallout. Red rain. Acid rain. Even the lyrics evoke that. Uh, They tell you that the rain can sting and look down. But while this song would be used for that purpose later on in campaigns, it was never written that way. Uh, The song's lyrics were based on a very vivid dream that Gabriel had. Do any bit of research on Peter and you will come to realize that the man has very vivid, disturbing dreams. Just read the story that inspired much of the lyrics for The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and uh, you will see that his dreams are a little messed up. That, That story that's on the back jacket for Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, typed out is like 15 pages. Holy crap. And it is so fucking weird. It is weird. It basically involves him falling into a weirdo dream world underneath New York City where he's chasing his brother, but then he ends up getting his dong chopped off. And I mean, it's a very weird story. It's (laughs) – I'm not joking. He actually – I mean, that's what the the, (laughs) – it's what it's about. We were going to do when the lamb lays down on Broadway several years ago. Well, a year and yeah. a half. So you always, so you got deep I started, into it. I started doing my research on it, and yeah, it's a very bizarre story. <laughs> and I'm a little honestly jealous of people that can dream like this because I never have been able to. 
Now, mind you, I don't necessarily want the scary, creepy parts of it. Not that vivid. But I would take a little bit more vivid dreams, if I'm honest with you. But yeah, it sounds like Peter has these crazy, vivid visuals. I mean, that's the best way to describe it, that he just experiences right. all and the time. You'd want to be like, ah, it's got to be drugs. But I don't yeah. think it is. I think it's just he just has messed up dreams. And yeah. It's uh, it's bizarre. So the go, go ahead. Go, no, I say, do you have the the inspirational dream for this song? Yeah, no, you go ahead. You yeah, sure? Yeah, yeah. In the dream, he was swimming in a pool of red wine. He then begins to see see wine bottle shaped people that are transporting a red liquid back and forth between two walls that's holding the ocean back. Uh, the people then begin to fall off a cliff, uh, and the bottles smash against the ground. The bottle people smash against the ground, and they begin re- leaking red fluid, and that becomes the red rain. The red rain. Uh, several years before this release in the late seventies, Gabriel had an idea for a film titled Mozo, mm-hmm. for which Red Rain was to be the theme song. In the film, a group of villagers would be punished for their sins by enduring a blood red rainstorm. The film never came to fruition, but there are traces of it in his songs on the air, down the Dolce Vita, Here Comes the Flood, and Exposure. Uh, And while the hits of the record certainly roped me into the album, it was this song that cemented it as soon as I heard it. This song is really like nothing I had ever heard before. Its composition and structure are really unique. Uh, And the ending of the song, with its mournful vocals, is very effective. It sounds like this. Pretty good uh, commercially, though, too. This was released as the second single from this album, reached number three on the mainstream rock charts in the U.S., where it stayed for three weeks, uh, and it peaked at number 46 on the U.K. singles chart in 1987 because of a weird release. They decided they didn't want to release this one as a single, and then later they did, and then it went on the charts. And uh, Well, once the album started gaining traction, yeah. I think you start just, like, flipping singles out. Which... I don't know, man. Every time we read about this, and maybe it's because we're looking at it in hindsight, every time we read about this shit from the 80s where they're like, well, they decided not to release this as a single. It's like, what the fuck were you thinking? Why not? Why not? Like, yeah, it costs money to release it as a single, but can it really – how many singles from major artists in the 1980s didn't recoup the cost of pressing the singles? Right. From big artists. From big artists like – Peter Gabriel. Yeah, I feel How like many, you just chuck out a song. and Right? Like, and even if you did a small pressing to begin with, you're like, you know what? We're only going to do 100,000 of these. And when all those are gone, yeah, we'll do 100,000 more. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, I don't know. I can't get into the record labels' heads I mean, <laughs> that they're like, no, 
No, we need to pinch pennies wherever we can. Here's what we're going to do. Because you know what? Our, uh, because All right, so. our model, our business model is so flawless and perfect. Nothing will ever pop up that will make us not be profitable. So let's keep all the costs down Absolutely. and maximize the profits all the time because we'll be here forever. We'll be golden. It's not like we'll ever get to a point where people can just release music willy-nilly from their bedroom. No, no. completely impossible. No, we're going to be we're going to be rich forever. Uh, Sledgehammer? Sledgehammer, the most innuendo fuck song ever written. <laughs> right here, ladies same, and gentlemen. the same thing. It is a fuck song. It's an innuendo song. The most fuck song, uh, the most innuendoed fuck song ever written. <laughs> Literally, every single line in this is about sex. Yes. Album was the lead single off the record and the breakout song of his career. Released a month before the record, it would re- really, uh, reach number one in Canada, number four in the UK before landing on the top spot of the Billboard Top 100 and become his biggest hit in the States, driven in no small part by the, at the time, ubiquitous music video, which oh we God. will talk about here shortly. Yes. Uh, but it was also a hit on other charts as well. It topped the album Rock charts or rock tracks for two weeks and also weirdly the hot dance club chart because as you know that's what most people associate with peter gabriel hot dance mixes oh yeah the song opens with the sounds of the shakahoochee flute oh yeah this time of the synthesized variety now this is the third time we have covered that flute sound Previous instances mm-hmm. being Rush's Hold Your Fire and Dire Straits Brothers Brothers in Arms, released in 1987 and 84, respectively. Dire Straits is the only version of the three in which the actual sound was flute. The other two starts, <laughs> the other two artists capitalizing on the emerging MIDI technology to add texture and sound without the actual instrument being present. Uh, this song, as well as the later Big Time, to a lesser degree, were Gabriel's homage to the soul and funk and R&B he used to listen to as a kid. Yeah. It has been referred to as blue-eyed soul music. Oh, okay. Uh, Gabriel said this about it. As a teenager, soul music was one of the things that made me want to be a musician. It was really passionate and exciting. Wayne Jackson, who plays on that track, was also with Otis Redding and was touring with him when I saw them in London. So that was a thrill for me to get him on the record. But I think the song was more influenced by many of those stacks and Atlantic tracks rather than Otis particularly. And it does have a wonderful groove to it. Laid down by one of the great drummers of the era, Manu Kache. Manu Kache. Not sure how danceable the song is, but it does have a strut to it. Sounds like this. something to say before we uh, oh, move I was to gonna, the music. Uh, I was going to say about Wayne Jackson. Uh, yeah. Like you said, uh, a longtime uh, trumpet player for the Stax Records house band. Plays on this track as well because of all the influences. Uh, this track did incredibly well. Uh, it bumped Genesis's Genesis's 
Invisible Touch out of the number one spot. And in 2014, Phil Collins joked in an interview that, quote, I read recently that Peter Gabriel knocked us off the number one spot with Sledgehammer. We weren't aware of that at the time. If we had been, we'd probably have sent him an, a, a telegram saying, congratulations, bastard. <laughs> Which I thought was great. <laughs> this song was nominated for Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best Male Rock Vocal Performance, but it didn't win any of those. What? Uh, right? Features Wayne Jackson on trumpet, mm -hmm. Manu Kache on drums, Daniel Lenoir and David Rhodes on guitar, Tony Levine on bass. Pretty stellar list of musicians by any stretch. But it is the music video oh my God. for which it is most remembered. One of the most iconic music videos of the 1980s. It's like, in my brain, this and Thriller are, are number one and number two, and they kind of flip back and forth between the most iconic music videos of that era. This video changed the face of music videos. Yeah. Gone were blank boxes and empty stages of previous years. After the success of the video and its subsequent relation to how well the song ended up doing as a result, labels opened the pocketbook yeah. to see how far the medium could be pushed. Uh, this video was everywhere. It was directed by Stephen R. Johnson, and what's strange is that he did very little else after this. He directed the first season of Pee-wee's Playhouse mm -hmm. uh, and some additional videos, but not much more than that. Uh, the cl claymation sequences in the video were produced by Ardman Productions, the unit that would eventually make the Wallace and Gromit series. <laughs> Using a mixture of claymation, pixelation, and stop-motion techniques, he brought life to the song and forever changed the medium. It was an exhausting experience for Gabriel, who had to lay under a sheet of plexiglass for 16 hours <laughs> as the studio filled with the smells of rotting fish and dead chicken... <clears throat> Which had been employed in parts of the video. For, for me, my absolute favorite part of this video, and I do love all of it, is the very end when Gabriel gets up from a chair as his body becomes the entire night sky. Yeah. And he walks through a door, which is also the night sky. Uh, it was so cool, and the entire thing was absolutely fantastic. And you know he got electrocuted while he was doing that, right? <laughs> well, you know, these are the risks that you take. You know, it was a small electrocution. It wasn't serious. But you know, when your mom walks in the room and it gets her attention and the song is also good and she likes it, you have a win. Yeah. You know, she's like, oh, you're not watching that thing, you know. Peter Gabriel himself MTV. credits this uh, for the success of the song. He told Rolling Stone, quote, I think it had a sense of both humor and fun, neither of which were particularly associated with me. I mean, wrongly in my way of looking at it. I think I was seen as a fairly intense, eccentric Englishman. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, That's what, spot on. What do you know about pixelation, Matthew? Because uh, that was the one I've heard of claymation before, and I've heard of stop motion before, but I'd never heard of pixelation I don't know. before. Tell me about it. So, pixelation is this idea where you literally take a pixel or frame at a time of a real subject. So, oh, so frame every by single frame. frame by frame of Peter Gabriel was taken one shot at a time oh, and shit. then com combined together to make the video work. Uh, that seems incredibly tedious. And today it's like an Instagram plugin where you're like, <laughs> but at the time it took 16 hours to accomplish this. Look, I just made it. Right. Look, I just did my own. But uh, this, this single music video won nine MTV music video awards in 1987. Yeah. The most awards a single video has ever won. Yes. Video of the year, best male video, best concept video, most experimental video, best overall performance, best direction, best visual effects, best art direction, best editing. It was also nominated for viewer's choice, but did not win. What won? I don't know. I didn't look that up. I should have, but 
I would like to know who it is. And also won the Brit Award for Best Video of the Year. And it's most likely, as of this recording, probably the most played video in the history of MTV. I would say it's very close. I can't think of anything that came after it that would have been played more often. Yeah. But I'm sure there's something. It's probably something stupid. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a couple of those 80s videos that are vying for that top spot. Could be Smells Like Teen Spirit. Could be Smells Like Teen Spirit, maybe from the 90s. Something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I can't come up with anything off the top mm-hmm. of my head right now. To, but maybe it's I, that I Busta st- Rhymes video. Oh, maybe. <laughs> I would say it's probably, for sure, for sure it's top 10. For sure it's top 10. Best video of all time, in my opinion. Right. Like I said, flip-flops between this and Thriller for me in number, number one and number two. But Ooh, that's a good one. Don't Give Up? Don't Give Up. Don't Give Up, Kyle. This was the fifth single from the record in the States and was a bit of a minor hit at the time, peaking at number 72. It is a duet with Kate Bush, and for all you kids out there, that's who sings the Running Up the Hill song from Stranger Things. Yeah, she's, see, ha- she's having another uh, comeback moment right now. See, so. she actually did quite a bit more than just that one song. Maybe give her a complete listen. How about that? Her album, The Red Shoes, excellent record. Oh, wonderful. I mentioned it earlier, but she did sing backup on his Melt album as well, so their relationship goes back a ways. Yeah. Uh, originally, Gabriel composed this as a bit of a country song. Or something more akin to Americana to go along with the subject matter. And he wanted Dolly Parton (laughs) to sing the duet with him. I think that would have been amazing. Right? Also a little weird. They tried several times after this song came out to be able to get together and do a duet of it, like for a TV special or something. And it just sadly never happened. Their voices are so different. Yeah. So different. But apparently there were a lot more references in this song to American roots music and uh, uh, country music that were kind of removed uh, as he tooled it more to be sung by Kate Bush. But the song is inspired by the depression era photography of Dorothea Lange. Gabriel discovered her photography through a book of Farm Security Administration titled In This Proud Land. Gabriel saw a parallel between the ravaged Depression-era farmers and those suffering from the economic downturn in Martin Margaret Thatcher's Britain, who he could not stand. Uh, he wrote the song as the narrative of a man who'd lost his job to Thatcher's economic policies. Uh, the first line of the song is a reference to that book, and it sounds like this. In this proud land we grew up strong We were wanted all along I was taught to fight, taught to win I never thought I could fail No fight left or so it seems I am a man whose dreams have all deserted I've changed my face, I've changed my name I know that you already mentioned the uh, uh, New York Graphic Society's uh, book, this In This Proud Land. Yes. But uh, I did see there were other inspirations for this as well. Mm-hmm. And this, in my opinion, might be one of the saddest inspirations for a song I've ever read. So uh, Jill Gabriel, Peter's wife at the time, uh, said in a Song Facts interview, quote, I saw an article in a newspaper about a woman who jumped out of a huge block of flats with her child and killed herself. 
I gave it to Peter, and it was the original inspiration uh, for this song, and he was heartbroken to read it. However, his lyrics are always multi-layered with many different influences. There's also some suggestion from several um, music historians or whatever you want to call them uh, that this song was a direct response to a nervous breakdown Peter Gabriel had in 1985. And he may have both read um, or looked at the book and, and seen, been inspired while he was kind of recovering from that to write this well, song. Well, did you read what the nervous breakdown was a result of? No. On security. Mm-hmm. His producer for that record and his wife hooked up. Peter Gabriel's ah. wife. And that's why their marriage was so strained at that point is because his producer and his wife were, were hooking up behind his back while they were making the record. Interesting. I know they were in the process of breaking up basically yeah, while this was being while this extraordinarily was... messy situation. Yeah. Um but over the years, Gabriel has said that a ton of people have come up to him and told him that this song prevented them from committing suicide. And yeah. it's easy to see why. The conversational and confessional aspect of the song are very poignant and a lot of the times exactly what someone would need to hear. Just to know that someone is supportive and listening is precisely what it takes. Uh, the most famous instance of this song being a motivator for help comes from Sir Elton John, who said that this song was the impetus for him to get sober, Yeah, which is... a that's just crazy that he could identify like that one, like that's the song that did it or that's the thing that did it. I do also like, though, that he immediately credits Kate Bush and not Peter Gabriel in that same interview. <laughs> I've, never, uh, I've never said that to Kate Bush, but uh, she really helped me get sober. And it's like, well, what about? Uh, so what about the other 50% of the song? He's like, that made me that made me want to drink more. And then I heard Kate Bush singing and I was like, I need to get I clean. need to get sober. Uh, there are a couple of interesting covers of this song's. Uh, this song as well, there's a version by Alicia Keys and Bono uh, that I don't think is really very interesting or good. But the other one, Willie Nelson and Sinead O'Connor. Yeah, I saw that. Who thought of getting these two guys together? Huh? That's nuts. But it's awesome. It's so good. Surprisingly good. Like, I was very, I'm like, whoa. Like, who, <laughs> who said, you know, we get the bald chick and... The super high guy that owes like $10 million in taxes. Yeah, he'll do whatever we ask him to. Mash he's him. trying are, to make money. Right? He's he's doing whatever. Uh, that voice again. Oh. Yeah, I'm moving on. Oh, you got more? Oh, I was just going to say the single for uh, oh, yeah, uh, this it. peaked at number nine in the UK. Spent 11 weeks on the chart chart there. And it did also win the Ivo Novella. Or Ivor Novella. Novella. I can never pronounce that. Ivor Novella. Ivor Novella Award for Best Song Musically and Lyrically. Which is a pretty wow. high honor. Now, There's better lyrics on this record, but yeah. it's good. That voice again, where you were headed. Yeah, that's where I was headed. Definitely one of the lesser known songs on the record and what some would consider to be a deep cut. Mm -hmm. The closer of the first side is one of the best songs on a record, loaded with great songs. It was one of only two songs with a co-writer, this one being assisted by guitarist David Rhodes. His contribution was mostly lyrical, however. Gabriel had written three sets of lyrics for the song and Rhodes helped him land on the particular set and which way to go. The song is about people's judgmental attitudes being barriers to how we both communicate with and interpret communication from one another. Uh, the lyrics, I'm listening to, to the conversation, judge and jury in my head, that's coloring everything, all we did in set. So I have referenced this before on this show, mm -hmm. uh, and that is how my wife and I were taught how to argue in marriage class. I've brought this up before, oh. uh, how we had to basically repeat what the other other person's argument was before we could launch into our own volley of attack 
and it forced you to listen, to really listen to someone's point of view. And this song reminds me of that and how that line comes up later. Only in our uncertainty are we naked and alive is very much the crux of that. The uncertainty of what is coming next makes you completely vulnerable. And in that vulnerability, do we learn things because we have to be open while we're doing that? And that song, that part of the song sounds like this. I'm listening to the conversation, judging jury in my hand. It's coloring everything. Oh, we did and said. And still I hear that sharp tongue talking, talking tangled words. I can sense the danger. Just listen to the wind. Uh, the song was originally called First Stone, but changed the title because of the biblical connotations of that title. And it was a song that almost got Daniel Lanois fired. Hmm. Did you read this? Where he... Nailed Peter Gabriel into the bar. <laughs> Gabriel was notoriously slow and meticulous when it came to songwriting. He wrote, rewrote the lyrics several times, and Lanois was getting pissed. Mm-hmm. So he locked Gabriel in a barn, which doubled as their recording space, to get him to finish. And Gabriel almost fired him for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another great line from this song Only love can make love. Well, Come on, that's a really good line. Only love that's, can make love. That's re- that's a really cool line. And holy shit, when he holds that note on that section, it's amazing. I'm sure there's some uh, studio trickery there, but uh, it's effective. Only love can make love, and only hatred can make good chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Who are you talking about? Oh, I don't know. Peter Gabriel said uh, this song is don't leave me hanging. Quote, about judgmental attitudes being a barrier between people. Uh, but I, I also I, think that obviously this voice, when you listen to it and you read the lyrics, <laughs> then you guys have me giggling. Well, I want to know about this chicken. Well, I gotta go back to the chicken. I don't want to give the company any advertising for free. Oh, so you just write it down for me. Yeah, I'll, I'll oh. tell you at the end of this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think everybody else has already figured it out. There's only so many chicken restaurants around. <laughs> I don't know what he said. No. Nah, well, anyways, Peter Gabriel said this song was about judgmental attitudes being a barrier between people. Yes. And I also think that the title, this voice refers to that inner voice. The one that always tells you you're not good enough for this person. You don't deserve this person. You don't deserve to be in this relationship. I shut that voice up a long time. I, I've tried so hard. Uh, <laughs> and listen, to that let me take another guy. drink of this beer. I don't listen to that fucking guy anymore. <laughs> oh, see, that would be lovely. Uh, but it, really, I, I think this is a great song. It's a great, it's an interesting take on a love song to me. Mm. In that it's a love song about how you're not adequate enough to love the person that you love until you can overcome that and realize you actually are. Oh, that's deep. Right? Back to this chicken, though. Sorry. Ch- uh, Chick-fil-A. Oh! <laughs> yeah, you said Jesus it. Chicken. The Jesus chicken. There you go. <laughs> Can't believe that didn't click. It didn't I, click. All right, well. I don't know. I, w- I just wasn't thinking about hater chicken. Cluck. <laughs> didn't cluck. Yeah, in your eyes. In my eyes. A very recognizable song to a lot of people. Yeah. Again, because of something visual. This song is, or it was, of course, associated with the 1989 movie Say Anything, starring oh, yeah. John Cusack. 
Uh, it was the second single from the record in the States and reached number one on the mainstream rock charts and number 26 on the Billboard Top 100. It is a romantic song, but written in the African tradition where the romance line is blurred between romantic love and the love between man and God. Because this is the influence, Gabriel used Senghalese singer Yusu Endur to sing backup on the track. Uh, it is so effective and gives the song unique texture and flavor. Yes, it does. He, he sings on the ride out of that of the song, and I will not attempt to say what he says, but the translation for what he is saying is, your eyes in lamp and heat, your eyes inside, translated into his, na uh, his native Wolof. Uh, that sounds like this. Oh, I wanna be that I would say originally this it was a song called Sagrada, uh, which Peter was inspired to write after visiting a cathedral in Barcelona, yeah, Sagar Spain. Sagrada Familia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the massive cathedral that's been under construction for like 350 years yeah. now. Definitely. Just finish it already. Right? God. Never going to be finished. I don't think that place will ever be finished. But uh, it was also partially inspired by Peter's at the time girlfriend, Rosanna Arquette, supposedly. Mm -hmm. Supposedly. Uh, like you said, famously used in uh, the scene from Say Anything, where John Cusack's character holds up the boombox above his head, uh, and wrote, supposedly, the producers of the movie approached Peter Gabriel about using it, and he originally said no. Yep. And then Rosanna Arquette said, you know, maybe you should reconsider. This could be a big deal. And the production ended up paying $200,000, supposedly, to use this song for that little tiny clip. Yeah. However, totally worth it. One of the most iconic scenes from a 1980s film. It is, would, it's one say, of the most effective uses of music in a movie that oh, yeah. I know of. And if you've even if you've never seen Say Anything, you know that scene. Requires no dialogue. It's perfect as yeah. is. Uh, and that wasn't even the song that Cameron Crowe wanted to use. Yeah. He wanted to use uh, Gotta Be My Lover by Billy Idol. Yeah. That would have changed the whole they, fucking scope of the scene. What's funny is they tried that on set. There's a, apparently footage somewhere <laughs> of them trying that, and it just didn't work. And then Cameron Crowe was sitting there, and he was like you know what song would really fit? And he ran and got a cassette that they had played at his wedding, mm -hmm. brought it over, put it in the, in the player, and they played it. And they're like, oh, yeah, this fits a lot better. Right. Gabriel only relented after the influence of Roseanne Arquette and because Cameron Crowe sent him a copy of the movie. Yeah. And he saw that, oh, that would actually work there. Yeah, it fits uh, really well. Originally, Gabriel wanted this to be the last song on the record yeah. because of the emotional weight behind it. But because of the very prominent bass line in the song, they moved it to the beginning of side two because on vinyl, closer you are to the center, the more effective the vibrations from the bass. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in future releases, uh, the song was moved to the end, but I think that's really an interesting, a really interesting footnote, and it makes me wonder if there are other instances, yeah, where the play order was affected by the bass. It's funny that you would say that because I have that exact same note. Because I was like, I wonder how many other albums right? had to screw up their order because they're like, oh, this song has a lot of bass, we need to put it on the outside of the album, so it becomes either the opener to the A or the B side, right? 
And then what it, other songs had to be moved or maybe should have been moved yeah. because of this? How that, many how that many, requires some exploration. How many other songs would have sounded better on the outside of the album instead of on the inside? That's it. I'm gonna listen to every record now <laughs> and make a list. Comprehensive list. Uh, this, you, go ahead. This, oh, oh wait. No, go ahead. The song but, features but, uh, but I was gonna, Great parts but, from everyone. Catch A, Levine Rhodes, all shine in the song, as well as Yusu Endure. Uh, he would surface again on a song called Shaking the Tree from a Peter Gabriel Greatest Hits compilation from 1990. That is also a great song. Have you read anything about what Yusu Endure has done since then? No. I mean, obviously, a little bit more music. But uh, he actually uh, he served as the Minister of Culture and Tourism in Senegal in 2012, then as the Minister of Tourism and Leisure and finally, he was appointed as the special advisor to the president with the rank of minister and tasked with promoting the country abroad. Wow. Pretty impressive. Hey, he's getting involved. Right? I like that. Apparently, there's a, also a great story of Peter Gabriel playing this song at the Hollywood Bowl in 2012. Oh. As he started it, John Cusack walked on stage with a boombox, <laughs> handed it to Gabriel, bowed, and walked off. That's amazing. Cool moment that I wish I would have been able to see. That oh, awesome. that's amazing. Uh, Mercy Street? Mercy Street. This one's inspired by the poetry of Anne Sexton, uh, who wrote a poem titled 45 Mercy Street and a play titled Mercy Street. I don't know about you. I am not even going to go. I'm not even going to scratch the surface with Anne Sexton. Uh, I did a little bit, but not a lot because it, there's oh there's God. a lot. It's terrible. That uh, story is. If you want to go out to the listeners, if you want to go out and and research Anne Sexton, her poetry is beautiful. I'll touch her, on it a bit here. Her but. story and the story of her family and her children is just the most depressing. Pretty messed up. Yeah, be in a good place before you go researcher. Right? Let me put it that way. So on an album full of great songs, I believe this to be the best song on the album. And it's really? absolute emotional center of the record. It is remarkably depressing and haunting. It checks all the boxes for me as far as music goes. <laughs> the lyrics are both <laughs> touching and mournful. The music is understated but effective. It is wonderful. And like you said, it's uh, based on a play and a poem by Anne Sexton. She was a poet. But she was also... A mental patient. And she wrote her poems as a form of therapy, which means she was writing for an audience of one herself. Mm -hmm. Her poems are confessional and raw, and thereby this song exudes those qualities. And this is the only song not completely recorded at Gabriel's home studio. Yes. Most of the tracks were recorded in Rio. Five musicians are on this song, none of which appear anywhere else on the album. Jalma Korea supplied percussion. Larry Klein played bass, one of the highlights of his career, in his opinion. Richard T. played piano, although that part was cut out of the final mix entirely, but he still gave him credit. Mark Rivera played processed saxophone, and Gabriel played everything else, which include keys, synths, and my favorite part of the whole song, the vocals. And the song sounds like this. Cars were once just 
used to dream in somebody's head. She pictures the broken glass, pictures the steam. She pictures the soul. Uh, there are two vocal parts on the song. One is the main vocal line performed normally. The second is a shadow vocal, a harmony vocal performed one octave below the main. Gabriel was only able to sing this part when he woke up in the morning while his vocal cords were totally relaxed. <laughs> and if the song seems just a little bit off, it's because when they were playing the song back for Gabriel during recording, they accidentally played it back 10% slower than it was recorded. So it seems dreamy and strange. Yeah, I think that's a cool effect. It's interesting. It really I adds to it. love it. Did you also read about what happened to Peter while he was on his way to Brazil that sort of inspired him? To, I did. To, you go ahead. Oh, so this is a long quote, but I'm going to read it anyways. Peter Gabriel, in an interview with Mojo Magazine in 2013, said this. He said, quote, in the 1980s, Pan Am had started doing mileage programs. I got up to 100,000 miles from touring, so I booked a free flight from LA to Rio. The catch was that I had to travel in economy. On the way onto the plane, in first class, I said hello to the bass player from Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, Verdine White, who happened to be on the plane. I got a, I got a, fly, I got a fly basic economy. Yeah, Sorry. you know. It's After Gabriel, we took off. Gabriel in the back by the John. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, that's Peter Gabriel back there either by the crapper. That's great. After we took off, the plane developed a fault, something with the landing gear, and the pilot told us we had to fly over the Pacific and dump some fuel. That's when everyone became very scared, writing farewell letters. I even scribbled some notes. Earthwind and Fire's bass player came back from first class to see me in economy and just said in his in a sonorous voice, pray, brother. <laughs> the pilot got us down, thank God. In Rio, I met the drummer, Jama Korea. I worked on some ideas with him, and that led to this track, Mercy Street. Uh, that, that Excuse me. That led to the track that Mercy Street was built around. So near-death experience on a plane. <laughs> and then you write a beautiful song. Yeah. I think Pre that's great. Pray, brother. Pray, brother. <laughs> Whoa. As far as uh, Anne Sexton is concerned, and I will not give the whole background, Kyle, uh, mm -hmm. you know, encourage you, you to go you, look it up. You can if you want. No, I'm not. Gonna, I, I'm not. It just, it's super depressing. But she was in and out of institutions, would most likely be diagnosed as bipolar nowadays, and mm -hmm. probably be successfully treated. Yeah. Uh, back then, she was subjected to any number of questionable techniques that probably did more damage than anything else. Lyrically, he references her specifically a couple times by name. And when you really listen to the words in the song, it is just so, so sad. Yeah. She tried four times to kill herself and was successful on the fifth attempt, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And this became a very powerful moment in the live show for Peter Gabriel as he would utilize a very high-pitched wail at the very end of the song to simulate her death. It was very intense. And I saw it in 87 or 88. It was like, whoa, whoa. I mean, he does so many, like, it's it's kind of like, um, I've said this before, like going to see Tool is kind of like going yeah. to church. It's like going to church. Like you're so wrapped up in what's going on. And then he like does the stage dive where he like puts his hands out like Jesus and falls backwards into the crowd and then basically crowd surfs for, for like two or three minutes. Wow. It's a... It's a lot. It's like very intense. Uh, there are numerous cover versions of this song. I've probably listened to all of them uh, because I love the song so much. However, my favorite is by the Jamaican reggae band Black Uhura. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, go make some time and listen to it because it's a, more of an upbeat version of the song, but it's actually it's, it's quite special. It's very good. Huh. 
You got any more on uh, Mercy Street? The last thing I've got on this is New Music Express, uh, NME, the magazine. Yeah. Put this song on their list of 10 most depressing songs ever written. Yeah. So. Yep. I can see that. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I'd buy that. Right. Uh, Big time. Big time. The third big song from this album. Peaked at number eight. And it's a song about yuppies. (laughs) I'm sure you know what a yuppie is, Matthew. Uh, I do know what a yuppie is. You may have even been one. I was shut up. Uh, but a yuppie, to anyone uh, from our audience who doesn't know, uh, was a term from the 1980s that refers to a young urban professional. Mm-hmm. Basically, people who were young and successful but hadn't really developed any type of personality or taste of their own. So they followed what all the other yuppies were doing. Wait a so, second. Did you just say that I have no personality or taste of my own? In the 1980s. Oh. You've developed since then. <laughs> Uh, but it definitely Seinfeld is kind of considered the the television version of a yuppie. I do like in Seinfeld. A way. It, well, it doesn't have anything to do with whether you like him or not. But oh. the idea that you know, oh, why do you why do you have this couch? Well, it's the couch that everybody else said was great. Another perfect example: ah, uh, American uh, Psycho. Oh yes, you know That's everybody. A perfect example why do you it. have this business card? Well, because this is the perfect business right, card. Right, it's like it has, it's on this white paper stock or yeah. whatever. It's, I mean, obviously yeah. that's the example of the yuppie taken to the extreme where he becomes a serial killer. But but you know we get it. But uh, uh, yeah, it, that's really what this is about. Yes, another strong, ambitious music video directed by Stephen Johnson, very similar to Sledgehammer and its look. Because why not? It worked the first time. Yeah, and then it worked again. The song, like Sledgehammer, features the Memphis horn section. Uh, however, when they played live, Gabriel didn't take a horn section on the road with him. So keyboard David Sanctious, who is an absolute legend in his own right, holy crap, David Sanctious is fucking great. Uh, <laughs> look that guy up. Woof. Uh, he played with Sting on the road, too. Unbelievable. He had to use a sampler to play them back. Uh, back then, it was all on floppy disks. <laughs> So there were times during the show when Gabriel would have to stall while he changed discs, something that Sanctious hated. <laughs> hey, hold on, I got a, I got a five and a five and a quarter inch disc. I got to change. Hold on, it's not working. <laughs> it's working. Now. Give me the backup. Give me the backup. Uh, for the drum parts, Gabriel had all three drummers on the record basically try out and record versions of it: Manu Kache, Jerry Murata, and Stuart Copeland. He ultimately chose Copeland's, but would end up treating them like the rest of the song. There's nothing conventional at all. He mixed it mono, slowed it down, sped it up as he saw fit. He even added additional fills into the song where Copeland had not played them. Uh, For the bass part, he also experimented. Uh, Levine played the notes, but Murata actually hit the strings with his sticks giving it a very percussive sound to it. This would lead to the creation, I've mentioned before, by Levine of Funk Fingers. (laughs) basically uh, drumsticks attached to the tips of his fingers. Um, (laughs) And here's a bit of big time right here.
love that bass line. It's really good. It's a great song. It, like you just said, that bass line is really good. It's so good. Also ends with a big penis. So how it can does. you go wrong with that? Bulgin is big, 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 big. Also the theme song to WrestleMania 22. So it's yeah, got oh, that going for There you it. go. <laughs> uh, we do what we're told. We do do what we're told. Milgram's 37, which is a little bit wrong, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, it's a reference to the infamous obedience experiment carried yeah. out by Stanley Milgram, thus Milgram's 37. Yeah. So you've heard of this before, even if you didn't know about it. These were the experiments where people were instructed to obey an authority figure and in turn instructed them to perform acts conflicting with their personal conscience. Participants were led to believe that they were assisting in an unrelated experiment in which they had to administer electric shocks to a learner. Uh, these fake electric shocks gradually increased to levels that would have been fatal uh, had they actually been real. Yeah, it was devised to see if it could possibly be that the Nazis were just following orders yeah. as Adolf Eichmann uh, stated during his trial for war crimes. That's kind of where that started. Go on. Yeah. I was to say, in Milgram's first set of experiments, 65%. That is 26 out of 40 of the participants were willing to give a fatal shock, and 100% of the participants gave a shock of at least 300 volts. All subjects showed signs of discomfort while performing the experiment, including things like chewing on their nails, you know, biting their fingers, nervous tics. Some of them had like minor seizures and things, uh, but they kept going. Uh, and when they did try to stop, which all of them did at one point say, should I keep going? The person administering this experiment said, go on, and they would. Of course, nobody was really shocked. You, you have no other choice. You have no other choice. You must go on. Yeah, that was the response. Uh, of course, you know nobody really shocked during these, but it certainly sounded like they were being shocked in another room. Uh, I mean, and in this political climate we are now, it couldn't be any more true that people yeah. follow. They just right? follow and no one, very few people were like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to kill this person, essentially. And, and what's crazy, too, is, you know, obviously, this was a pretty small experiment when he started. 40 people. The 37 in the title refers to supposedly the number of people willing to give a fatal shock. Uh, that may not be the correct number, but it's still, you know, fun for the title. But. Uh, this experiment has been repeated with minor variations and things over the years to prove that it actually holds. Uh -huh. And it does. And it does. Uh, 65%. Yeah. So uh, it turns out if you're, you know, being That's fucking messed up, man. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is another one of those things where when you read about this from the outside, I always think to myself, hell no, I wouldn't do this. And the minute they're like, I'm going to electrocute someone, I'd be like, I'm out. See you guys later. But then when you actually put somebody in this situation, would they? Yeah. And you don't know until you try it. Six and a half out of 10 people would. <laughs> I mean, that's It's crazy. And now that you know about it, here's what it sounds like. Awesome bow, 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 bow. song is uh, David Rhodes using a vintage Jazzmaster guitar 
on this track. And he told Guitar Player Magazine in 1987, he used it for its, quote, heavy wang bar. <laughs> Speaking of which, if anybody has a heavy wang bar and they'd like to get in touch, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Drums are uh, played by Jerry Murata on the track. Violins by L. Shankar. You're not and, even going to try it, huh? No. And everything is very processed by Gabriel, including his voice. Yes. Um, in the live setting, before the song was released, because this song is very old, it dates mm -hmm. back to the Melt record when he first envisioned doing this, he would get the crowd chanting, we do what we're told, basically confirming the experiment. Yeah. Because they all just did what they were told. Well, I have tried to figure out what the no name- No one was dying, most likely, yeah, yeah. but- there's a name for that that I heard years and years and years ago, and it's the experience that people see, um, the thing that people experience in a crowd situation where like people start clapping and then everybody else joins in and starts I must clapping. Clap. And I have not, for the life of me, been able to come up with the words to describe it to be able to find what the term is. Oh, that's a good example. The wave. Yeah, the wave is another perfect example. Right? In fact, guilt people into doing it. What? You're not going to do the wave with the rest of us? Well, no, I'm not fucking doing the wave. Have either of you ever seen the movie The Wave? No. So The Wave is a very low budget movie made in the 70s. Well, then why would I have seen right? it? Right. <laughs> um, uh, it starts. It's set in high school, and this history teacher is talking about. Nazi Germany, surprise, surprise, Whoa. ties back in. And he says, you know, one of his students asks, why did everybody follow the Nazis if they knew that it was wrong? And he said, well, they got caught up in the wave. And it inspires Ooh. him to try his own experiment. And in the experiment, he starts putting up all these posters around the school saying, the wave is coming. Will you ride the wave? The wave is coming soon, you know. And all the students get all excited and they get all hyped up about it. And he, they go to a, a pep rally. And in the pep rally, he comes out and says, the wave is the newest thing. It's, it's great. It's, it's a whole life experience called the wave. And basically, he sets the whole school up exactly the same way they set up Nazi Germany, where there's a small group of people who suddenly have a lot of power who before had none. No, I, no, and I'm those intrigued. people, those people can, you know, oh, hey, you're late for class. Well, I get to write you up now because I have the power to do that. And this experiment goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks until a few of the students start to get like, you know, hey, why are we doing this? This is right. stupid. This is dumb. And even the teacher gets swept up into it and starts being like, well, no, we have to do this to keep the wave going. And finally, I think it's his girlfriend says, you realize what you're saying, right? And he's like, oh, my God, what have I done? Oof. And at the same time, one of the uh, – I think the football team beats up some kid because he's not part of the wave. And then basically the teacher goes in the next day and pulls the curtain open and says to everybody, guess what? You're all fucking Nazis. Ooh. Like he doesn't actually say it like that. Oh. But he's basically like, you're all Nazis. You all fell for it. So you want to know how it happened in Germany in the 1930s? It happened exactly the same way that it did here. And then all the students feel shitty and leave. Uh, I oh, think I'm going to have to watch it. I know that it, I'm pretty sure it's one of those movies that was made for like public television. So I don't know how. Was it like an after school special? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's on YouTube or somewhere on the internet. I'm going to have to check it out. Uh, I remember watching it in high school and being like, oh yeah, that's exactly how it happens. And everybody else in my high school history class being like, I don't get it. But still, it's I, mean, good. I, made wouldn't, it. I wouldn't follow the Nazis if I was And it's like. I made a note. 
you don't get it. You're the not wave. seeing it. But shitty movie that sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a very shitty movie that sounds interesting. I don't even think it's an hour. I think it's oh, probably good. fifty-five uh, minutes. So I can, I can afford that. It's time. not going to waste a lot of your life. But sorry for the aside. No, but, that's uh, good. Uh, I like a good aside because this is the picture, Matthew. Excellent birds. Excellent birds. Technically, this song does not appear on the initial vinyl pressing mm-hmm. of the album, but did appear on the first cassette and CD release. This happened because Gabriel decided to include the song 48 hours before <laughs> the album was set for release. Uh, Peter, we've already started pressing the vinyl. Yeah, but I want to get this one song on there. Now, but we can't. Just want, it, just, just get it on there. Just but, slide it in there. Uh, this song gets the only other co-write on the record, assisted by and recorded with Lori Anderson. Ever listen to her stuff? I've never listened to her standalone stuff. It's fucking weird. Yeah, I would imagine just judging by by reading about her and and researching her for this, and Bizarre. it was one of those things I did not have the time to go search out her music, but she does have a fantastic story about how she had to travel with all this electronic gear in the 80s and 90s, and all her music is kind of anti-authoritarian music. Yeah. And she would end up having to set it up for people like at the TSA or at like a police station or wherever she was. And one of the big things that she always does is she has this voice effect called the voice of authority. And it takes her voice and drops it so it's really low and it's the voice of authority. And she had to show that off to all these SWAT teams and police officers and shit to prove that it was actually what she said it was. That's cool. And they would all say the same thing. Why would you want to use that to show off the voice of authority? And her quote was something like, I would look around the room and there'd be SWAT teams with uh, assault rifles and police officers with their guns on their hip. And I'd say, why the fuck do you think? (laughs) Uh, That was great. That's a good story. So this song, uh, it's two different songs essentially blended together. The first is Excellent Birds that Gabriel wrote and recorded for a movie called uh, Good Morning, Mr. Orwell. And then they mashed that together with a guitar, uh, guitar jam that Gabriel recorded with Nile Rogers called This Is The Picture. He then scattered the vocals around the whole song, and this was the result. Shook them on like pepper. Experimental song. It, it's not <laughs> great, but it's not bad either. Uh, there are several versions of this as well, because Gabriel and Anderson could not decide on <laughs> bass lines or how the thing should sound, so of they course. bumped heads quite a bit. Anderson released her version of the song on her 1984 album, Mr. Heartbreak, two years before this album came <laughs> out. Uh, in context, it's a strange ending to the album, but we know that the intention was to finish with In Your Eyes, yeah. which completely changes the way it feels at the end. Yeah. And uh, if you do listen to this in the quote unquote correct order, to me, that feels more like an album. 
Yeah. It does play out much more like an album. It, it has that sort of albumish cadence where it kind of it goes up, it stays up and kind of floats around a little bit and then drops off at the end well, in and, your eyes. And essentially, yeah, it, the album ends with that long extended ride yeah. out with Yusu and Dor singing at the very end, which I think is a, a much better finish. Agree. Uh, and that is Peter Gabriel's So. One of the most important records of the 80s, one of my favorite albums of all time. I, think I can a, see why. I think a lot of music fans, especially younger fans, may have missed out on the complexity of Peter's career. Most people I talk to have no idea he was ever in Genesis mm-hmm. and don't know much about his career outside of this record. So I encourage everyone to uh, get an education and listen to those first few albums, as tough as some of them may be. Uh, and then, from what I hear, get ready for a new album later in Ooh. 2022. Um, if you would like to get a hold of us, yeah, you can get a hold of us any number of ways. You can get a hold of us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash audio judo, Twitter at audio judo, or Instagram at audio underscore judo. Yes. Uh, we have neglected the video element of the podcast because we've been changing studios. Yeah. Uh, but we'll be getting back to that. So make sure you check that out. You can find a link at our website, audiojudo.com. Do you have any shout outs that you want to I hear? do, but I was just going to say, I think you missed the email info at audiojudo.com. Oh, I did. Uh, obviously, like I say every time, that one goes right to our phones. We do try to respond to those as quickly as possible. Not quickly as possible, but we do try to respond to the email. So if you really want to get in touch with us, info at audiojudo.com. And we do have a shout out list. Uh, our front row seats tier, uh, Aaron P and Darlene W, Michael A and Jacob S. Jacob, I apologize. I think I missed you in the last two episodes. Son of a bitch. I, I'm sorry. That is 100% on me. So you're in here now, and I'm making a special point to shout out to you. Uh, our backstage pass, che- pass tier, uh, Christian S, David W, Michael S, and Scott K. I think I said it last time. I'm going to say it again. If there is a different name you would like me to put on this list that, uh, you know, I'm trying to use your first names with the last initial so we don't give away too much. Clownpenis.fart. Clownpenis.fart, you know, whatever. Uh, If you have a nickname or whatever you would like us to use on here, email us, info at audiojudo.com, and put your real name in there as well as what name you would like us to use, and I will put it on the list. Uh, We have episodes coming from the Eagles. Toad the Wet Sprocket as we begin our fourth season. Oh, yeah. Dave Matthews Band, Soundgarden, and the Moody Blues. So please come back and check that out. Until then, bye bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 